So let's begin by summarizing the passage, which comes in four scenes. In the first verses, Jesus tells his disciples that he, that is the Son of Man, is going to be crucified in just a few days' time at the Feast of Passover. Next, we have a scene in which the high priests and the elders are gathered together, plotting to kill Jesus. But they decide to wait until after the coming Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread in order to avoid a riot. Then we move to a very different scene. Jesus is reclining at a meal in Bethany, and a woman comes and pours expensive perfume over his head. There is indignation among his disciples over what they see as a waste of money that could have been used to help the poor. But Jesus rebukes them and affirms the woman. He says that this act was to prepare his body for burial. Finally, we shift to Judas at some point after the meal, as he goes to the chief priests and offers to betray Jesus to them if he has given money in return. He begins to watch for an opportunity to hand him over. These four scenes are linked together by a common thread, Jesus' death. Jesus knows that his death is fast approaching, and he tells this to his disciples and then reminds them again after he is anointed with the perfume. The chief priests want to kill Jesus and are trying to find a way to do it quietly. And then Judas goes to them and offers them the opportunity. I want to talk about three things particularly in relation to this passage. God's sovereignty, money, and our attitude towards Christ. So let's begin by taking a minute to dwell on the glorious sovereignty and providence of God at work in all of this. You see, Jesus knows that he must die at the feast of Passover, the feast to remember when Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and when a Passover lamb had been killed to deliver each household from the angel of death and judgment. It had always been God's plan that Jesus would die as the greater and final Passover lamb that he would completely deliver his people from death and judgment, and that he would effect a much greater rescue from slavery than that of the Israelites out of Egypt. He was to be the one to deliver his people from the power of sin and from Satan's dominion of darkness. And it was God's plan for him to rise again on the day of first fruits, which is always the first Sunday after Passover, so that he could be the new first fruit of the new creation. There would be no room for mistaking what Jesus did and what he had achieved. But the Jewish leaders knew none of this. For their own evil reasons, they had decided to kill Jesus. They wanted to to, to do so at the earliest possible opportunity, but they had reasoned that it would be best to wait until after the Feast of Passover, which is followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was an eight-day period during which Jerusalem would not just be filled by its regular population, but by hundreds of thousands of other Jews from the Judean countryside and from Galilee, where Jesus' support was probably strongest. And of course, because this was a time when the Jews remembered their deliverance from slavery and oppression, they were probably, at this time, more prone than ever to riot against the authorities. So the chief priests planned to wait until after things had quieted down and everyone had gone home from the feast 
and then find a way to arrest Jesus when the crowds were absent. However, God's plans will be fulfilled, even down to the smallest details. An arrest and a quiet execution on a nondescript date would not fit his grand storyline of history. And so another evil man enters the plot. Again, for evil reasons, all that we're told is that he asks for money. One of Jesus' closest followers offers to betray him in a quiet moment. And so God's grand plan comes together through the actions of evil men. As one who knows Jesus' movements, Judas can provide the priests with a way to arrest Jesus quietly, even during the feast. And we know from what happens next that Judas in turn would find an opportunity at a time that would perfectly align with God's plan so that Christ would be crucified at Passover. God's providence is so large and so effective that even the evil plans and evil actions of evil men are used to bring about every detail of his ultimate good purposes. How he does this is beyond us. I don't understand it, but it is wonderful to know that God has such exalted power. It is not just for Jesus that he does this. In Romans 8.28, we are told that all things work together for good for those who love God. He really means it, and he really is able to bring it about for good for you as well. Even if you are oppressed by evil men who clearly are not walking in God's ways, God's power and promise are such that he will turn it to your good and to his glory. So be encouraged. Whatever circumstances you are facing, they are nothing to the hard and evil hearts of Judas and the chief priests. If God could turn to good their evil, he can certainly do the same for your situation. We'll turn now to money. This passage involves dramatically different attitudes towards money. The woman at the dinner pours an entire bottle of very expensive perfume over Jesus' head. And Judas betrays him in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. We're told in the other gospel accounts that this woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and that the perfume was worth a year's wages for an average person. So that would be like somebody today pouring out a bottle of perfume worth £30,000 on your head. On the other hand, the 30 pieces of silver, scholars understand, were probably the silver coins used at the temple at the time. These were about twice, each, each one of these was about twice the average daily wage. If the high priests used these as their, as their pieces of silver, then 30 pieces would be about 60 days wages, or a couple of months. So Judas would have betrayed Jesus for what might be the equivalent of £5,000 in today's society. Now, if Judas had been a poor labourer, perhaps receiving that two months of constant wage all in one go might seem like a lot. But still, the dramatic difference is stark. The woman was ready to use up something that was worth a year's wages just to make Jesus smell nice whereas Judas is willing to commit the ultimate crime just to get his hands on two months' wages. 
These passages shine a light on our attitude towards money and possessions. By any measure, the woman's actions are extravagant. Whether you care about careful stewardship, personal interest, financial security, or social justice, what she does doesn't seem to make sense. Surely this money could have been invested in kingdom causes. Perhaps the perfume could have been saved for her wedding day, or when she was mixing with important people at social events. Or it could have been saved to be sold if she ever fell in hard times. Or, as the disciples said, wouldn't it have been better to give the money to the poor? Imagine how many widows and orphans could be fed with that much money. And look at Judas. In the two Gospels, or in two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, his going to the priests to betray Jesus for money is framed immediately after this incident with the expensive perfume. And in John's Gospel, we are told that he was the loudest objector to the woman's actions, not because he cared about the poor, but because he used to steal from Jesus and his team's money bag. Here was a man who really cared about money, who loved it enough to help himself to ministry funds, even those of the very Son of God. Can you imagine the desire in his heart, the sight of that expensive perfume, and then the pain and the anger when it all gets poured away, wasted on the head of Jesus? That pain, we're told, it, he immediately follows it with a trip to the priests to see what they will give him if he betrays Jesus. Have you any idea where such hunger for money might come from? That coursing desire that makes it hurt to see money wasted by others, that makes you itch to get your fingers on it. For some, it comes from insecurity, perhaps a childhood without enough, or parents who worried all the time. Maybe money makes you feel safe. You know you can support yourself if you need to. For others, that desire comes from envy, from seeing others walking past in their fine robes, wearing their expensive perfumes, and living their luxurious lives. And then you long for that life, for yourself, the life that God has given them. For some, it's just straight greed. For some, a desire for power, the power that money gives, a desire that, that you would be able to change things, to make a difference, perhaps even to change society and help the poor. We don't know what caused this desire for Judas, although we do know that he didn't care about the poor. We also don't know if he had further grievances against Jesus. We're not told about any. But even if he did, the fact remains that he betrayed him for money. He could have just betrayed him, but he specifically asks the priests for money. And this is specifically framed in the Gospels as following the woman's outpouring of the expensive perfume. What about you? Is there that hunger and drive for money in you? Where does it come from? I know for me that the desire for security still plays a big role. I sometimes think that if I only had that amount, I wouldn't have to worry anymore. In the past, I used to really indulge that, that idea of what I could do with a bit more money if I could just take a break from work or relax for a while. 
But then I also would indulge that desire for the power to change things. And I would fantasize about all the good that I could do. And all the things I would change if I only had a few billion pounds. Ultimately, though, I would say that the the behavior in this passage comes down to very different attitudes towards Jesus. The chief priests hated Jesus and would have done anything to get rid of him. The woman loved Jesus and would do anything to honor him. And Judas, Judas doesn't seem to value Jesus very much at all, at least certainly not in comparison to the money that he wants to get his hands on. Why would you hate Jesus? For the chief priests and the elders, it seems obvious from the gospel accounts, he has shown them up time and again. He has told them, directly and indirectly, how wicked and hypocritical they are. When always before, they had been able to convince themselves and others that they were the righteous ones. Jesus threatened that identity that belief about themselves, and they couldn't stand it. And he has threatened also their position, their power, their prestige, and their wealth, all rest on their position at the top of the religious hierarchy, on the fact that they have the answers, that they are the ones close to God, and that they can connect others to him. And they value this position more than God himself. Jesus had said it to them earlier. If they had really loved God, they would have loved and followed the one that God sent. The fact that they hated Jesus and wanted to kill him showed their true heart's attitude towards God. This idea carries through the passage. Your response to Jesus is what shows your true attitude towards God, no matter what you convince yourself. It is your attitude to Jesus not to what others think Jesus' cause is, not towards what we think his cause is, whether that is good works or ministry or helping the poor, but to Jesus himself that reveals our heart. This is what we see in the woman. She loves him so much that she would pour out an extravagant amount for what, in the end, is just a momentary honoring of Christ. She isn't thinking about helping the poor, She isn't thinking about herself or her own needs. She isn't thinking about kingdom work, whatever that might mean. She's thinking about Christ. She wants to make much of him. She wants to see him glorified, him exalted. What is 30,000 pounds for the chance to exalt our king? What is any expense for a chance to glorify Christ before the world? For Judas, this attitude is utterly incomprehensible. Perhaps Jesus was to him a good friend and a teacher, but to value him more than the things of this world, to focus everything on him rather than yourself. In the end, as they say, you have to look out for number one. In a sense, we can all be little Judases. Sure, we may not actually betray Jesus to the cross, We can say that we follow him. Sure, we can listen to his teaching and even try to apply it where it's not too uncomfortable. But on our day-to-day lives, who are we living for? What is our devotion and effort put into? Is it that promotion at work? A bit more money in the bank? 
avoiding that uncomfortable situation? Would you pour it all on Jesus' Jesus' head in an instant? Would you lose it all in a fragrant offering to him for his glory? We are told that you cannot serve both God and money. The same is true for any two masters. It may look like it works for a while. Indeed, Judas had managed to follow Jesus for three whole years without ever losing his heart for money. But in the end, the deepest devotion of your heart will show. Are you really all for Jesus? If not, there is a chance that one day you will discover that you were not at all for Jesus. Which of these people describes you or a part of you? Do you care about good causes so much that you can lose your sight of honoring Christ? Do you find Christ's words and actions so aggravating and convicting that you really just want to get rid of him? Do you convince yourself that you are following Christ, but have areas in your life that are still really lived for yourself? Or are you one like this lady, one who would pour out everything in extravagant worship, who would do anything to see Jesus made much of? If you feel like you can't do that, if you feel like this woman's response is too much for you, then let us take a moment to pray at the end of this talk. Jesus is able to draw you into greater love. He's able to show you more of his goodness, to show you his wonderful mercy, and he delights to do so. So ask him to do to it. Ask him to draw you into a greater trust of him, to show you how much he values you and how much value he has. Ask him to displace any other lords and masters in your life. And take a moment to pray about any areas of your life that are not fully and completely laid down for him. You may feel this is hard, but you can always choose your will to make Jesus the Lord of an area of your life, even if your heart and emotions do not yet feel fully ready. So, God is sovereign. He reigns over every detail, even over the actions of the wicked people. If we love and follow him, we can trust him to work for our good in the details of our life as well. And money is a powerful force. Our attitude towards it shows us a lot about the state of our heart. Who our real Lord is. But ultimately, our attitude towards Jesus is all important. How big a place does he occupy in your life and affections? Let us seek to exalt him more in every area of our lives. We're going to pray now. I'll pray the first part myself, and I invite you to join with me for the words that will come up in bold on your screen, if you feel able. Lord Jesus Christ, above all, we want to see you exalted. We want to glorify you and see you made much of. Help us to lay down every area of our lives so that you can reign over them and be glorified by them. Together now. Lord Jesus, please reveal in me any areas of my life where you are not first in my affections.
Help me, Lord, to cast down any idols. And please bring healing into those areas of my life where I feel insecure. Please show me more of your goodness and draw me into that greater love for you. I particularly ask you to be Lord of my money and my wealth. I lay them down before you for your glory. I also ask you to be Lord of my service and my good deeds. I lay them down before you for your glory as well. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.